This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Man Alive by G. K. Chesterton. Section 25. Part 2. The Explanations of Innocent Smith. Chapter 4. The Wild Weddings, or the Polygamy Charge. Part 2. If these gals, said Gould impatiently, if these gals were all alive, all alive, oh, I'd chance a fiver they were all born. You'd lose your fiver, said Michael, speaking gravely out of the gloom. All those admirable ladies were alive. They were more alive for having come into contact with Smith. They were all quite definitely alive, but only one of them was ever born. Are you asking us to believe, began Dr. Pym, I am asking you a second question, said Moon, sternly. Can the court now sitting throw any light on a truly singular circumstance? Dr. Pym, in his interesting lecture on what are called, I believe, the relations of the sexes, said that Smith was the slave of a lust for variety which would lead a man first to a negress and then to an albino, first to a Patagonian giantess and then to a tiny Eskimo. But is there any evidence of such variety here? Is there any trace of a gigantic Patagonian in the story? Was the typewriter an Eskimo? So picturesque a circumstance would not surely have escaped remark. Was Lady Bullingdon's dressmaker a negress? A voice in my bosom answers, No. Lady Bullingdon, I am sure, would think a negress so conspicuous as to be almost socialistic, and would feel something a little rakish, even about an albino. But was there in Smith's taste any such variety as the learned doctor describes? So far as our slight materials go, the very opposite seems to be the case. We have only one actual description of any of the prisoner's wives, the short but highly poetic account by the aesthetic curate. Her dress was the color of spring, and her hair of autumn leaves. Autumn leaves, of course, are of various colors, some of which would be rather startling in hair green for instance but i think such an expression would be most naturally used of the shades from red-brown to red especially as ladies with their coppery-coloured hair do frequently wear light artistic greens now when we come to the next wife we find the eccentric lover when told he is a donkey answering that donkeys always go after carrots a remark which lady bullingdon evidently regarded as pointless and part of the natural table talk of a village idiot but which has an obvious meaning if we suppose that Polly's hair was red. Passing on to the next wife, the one he took from the girl's school, we find Miss Gridley noticing that the schoolgirl in question wore a reddish-brown dress that went quite enough with the warmer color of her hair. In other words, the color of the girl's hair was something redder than red-brown. Lastly, the romantic organ-grinder declaimed in the office some poetry that only got as far as the words, O vivid! in violet head, ringed, but I think that a wide study of the worst modern poets will enable us to guess that ringed with the glory of red, or ringed with its passionate red, was the line that rhymed to head. In this case, once more, therefore there is good reason to suppose that Smith fell in love with a girl with some sort of auburn or darkish red hair. Rather, he said, looking down at the table, rather like Miss Gray's hair. 
Cyrus Pym was leaning forward with lowered eyelids, ready with one of his more pedantic interpretations. But Moses Gould suddenly struck his forefinger on his nose with an expression of extreme astonishment and intelligence in his brilliant eyes. Mr. Moon's contention at present, interposed Pym, is not, even if veracious, inconsistent with the lunatical criminal view of I. Smith, which we have nailed to the mast. Science has long anticipated such a complication. An incurable attraction to a particular type of physical woman is one of the commonest of criminal perversities, and when not considered narrowly, but in the light of induction of an evolution. At this late stage, said Michael Moon very quietly, I may perhaps relieve myself of a simple emotion that has been pressing me throughout the proceedings by saying that induction and evolution may go and boil themselves. The missing link and all that is well enough for kids, but I am talking about things we know here. All we know of the missing link is that he is missing, and he won't be missed either. I know all about his human head and his horrid tail. They belong to a very old game called Heads I Win, Tails You Lose. If you do find a fellow's bones, it proved he lived a long while ago. If you don't find his bones, it proves how long ago he lived. That is the game you've been playing with this Smith affair. Because Smith's head is small for his shoulders, you call him microcephalus. If it had been large, you'd have called it water on the brain. As long as poor old Smith's seragulo seemed pretty various, variety was the sign of madness. Now, because it's turning out to be a bit monochrome, now monotony is the sign of madness. I suffer from all the disadvantages of being a grown-up person, and I am jolly well going to get some of the advantages, too. And with all politeness, I propose not to be bullied with long words instead of short reasons, or consider your business a triumphant progress merely because you are always finding out that you were wrong. Having relieved myself of these feelings, I have merely to add that I regard Dr. Pym as an ornament to the world far more beautiful than the Parthenon or the monument on Bunker's Hill, and that I propose to resume and conclude my remarks on the many marriages of Mr. Innocent Smith. Besides this red hair, there is another unifying thread that runs through these scattered incidents. There is something very peculiar and suggestive about the names of these women. Mr. Tripp, you will remember, said he thought the typewriter's name was Blake, but could not remember exactly. I suggest that it might have been Black. And in that case we have a curious series. Miss Green in Lady Bullingdon's village, Miss Brown at the Hendon School, Miss Black at the Publishers, a cord of colours, as it were, which ends up with Miss Gray at Beacon House, West Hampstead. Amid a dead silence, Moon continued his exposition. What is the meaning of this queer coincidence about colours? Personally, I cannot doubt for a moment that these names are purely arbitrary names, assumed as part of some general scheme or joke. I think it very probable that they were taken from a series of costumes, that Polly Green only meant Polly, or Mary, when in green, and that Mary Gray only means Mary, or Polly, when in gray. This would explain. Dr. Cyrus Pym was standing up rigid and almost pallid. Do you actually mean to suggest, he cried, Yes, said Michael, I do mean to suggest that. 
Innocent Smith has had many wooings and many weddings, for all I know, but he has had only one wife. She was sitting on that chair an hour ago, and is now talking to Miss Duke in the garden. Yes, Innocent Smith has behaved here, as he has on hundreds of other occasions, upon a plain and perfectly blameless principle. It is odd and extravagant in the modern world, but not more than any other principle plainly applied in the modern world would be. His principle can be quite simply stated. He refuses to die while he is still alive. He seeks to remind himself by every electric shock to the intellect that he is still a man alive, walking on two legs about the world. For this reason he fires bullets at his best friends. For this reason he arranges ladders and collapsible chimneys to steal his own property. For this reason he goes plodding around a whole planet to get back to his own home. And for this reason he has been in the habit of taking the woman whom he loved with a permanent loyalty, and leaving her about, so to speak, at schools, boarding-houses, and places of business, so that he might recover her again and again, with a raid and a romantic elopement. He seriously sought, by a perpetual recapture of his bride, to keep alive the sense of her perpetual value, and the perils that should be run for her sake. So far his motives are clear enough, but perhaps his convictions are not quite so clear. I think Innocent Smith has an idea at the bottom of all this. I am by no means sure that I believe it myself, but I am quite sure that it is worth the man's uttering and defending. The idea that Smith is attacking is this. Living in an entangled civilization, we have come to think certain things wrong, which are not wrong at all. We have come to think outbreak and exuberance, banging and barging, rotting and wrecking, wrong. In themselves they are not merely pardonable, they are unimpeachable. There is nothing wicked about firing a pistol off, even at a friend, so long as you do not mean to hit him, and no, you won't. It is no more wrong than throwing a pebble at the sea, less, for you do occasionally hit the sea. There is nothing wrong in bashing down a chimney-pot and breaking through a roof, so long as you are not injuring the life or property of other men. It is no more wrong to choose to enter a house from the top than to choose to open a packing-case from the bottom. There is nothing wicked about walking round the world and coming back to your own house. It is no more wicked than walking round the garden and coming back to your own house. And there is nothing wicked about picking up your wife here and there and everywhere, if, forsaking all others, you keep only to her so long as you both shall live. It is as innocent as playing a game of hide-and-seek in the garden. You associate such acts with blackguardism by a mere snobbish association, as you think there is something vaguely vile about going, or being seen going, into a pawnbroker's or a public-house. You think there is something squalid and commonplace about such a connection. You are mistaken. This man's spiritual power has been precisely this, that he has distinguished between custom and creed. He has broken the conventions, but he has kept the commandments. It is as if a man were found gambling wildly in a gambling hell, and you found that he only played for trouser buttons. It is as if you found a man making a clandestine appointment with a lady at Covent Garden Ball, and then you found it was his grandmother. Everything is ugly and discreditable, except the facts. Everything is wrong about him, except he has done no wrong. 
It will then be asked, why does Innocent Smith continue far into his middle age a farcical existence that exposes him to so many false charges? To this I merely answer that he does it because he is really happy, because he really is hilarious, because he really is a man and alive. He is so young that climbing garden trees and playing silly practical jokes are still to him what they once were to us all. And if you ask me yet again, why he alone among men should be fed with such inexhaustible follies? I have a very simple answer to that, though it is one that will not be approved. There is but one answer, and I am sorry you don't like it. If innocent is happy, it is because he is innocent. If he can defy the conventions, it is just because he can keep the commandments. It is just because he does not want to kill, but to excite life, that a pistol is still as exciting to him as it is to a schoolboy. It is just because he does not want to steal, because he does not covet his neighbor's goods, that he has captured the trick, oh, how we all long for it, the trick of coveting his own goods. It is just because he does not want to commit adultery that he achieves the romance of sex. It is just because he loves one wife that he has a hundred honeymoons. If he had really murdered a man, if he had really deserted a woman, he would not be able to feel that a pistol or a love letter was like a song, at least not a comic song. Do not imagine, please, that any such attitude is easy to me or appeals in any particular way to my sympathies. I am an Irishman, and a certain sorrow is my bones, bred either of the persecutions of my creed or of my creed itself. Speaking singly, I feel as if man was tied to tragedy, and there was no way out of the trap of old age and doubt. But if there is a way out, then by Christ and St. Patrick, this is the way out. If one could keep as happy as a child or a dog, it would be by being as innocent as a child, or as sinless as a dog. Barely and brutally, to be good, that may be the road, and he may have found it. Well, 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 I see a look of skepticism on the face of my old friend Moses. Mr. Gould does not believe that being perfectly good in all respects would make a man marry. No, said Gould, with an unusual and convincing gravity, I do not believe that being perfectly good in all respects would make a man marry. Well, said Michael quietly, will you tell me one thing? Which of us has ever tried it? A silence ensued, rather like the silence of some long geological epoch which awaits the emergence of some unexpected type, for there rose at last in the stillness a massive figure that the other man had almost completely forgotten. Well, gentlemen, said Dr. Warner cheerfully, I've been pretty well entertained with all this pointless and incompetent tomfoolery for a couple of days, but it seems to be wearing rather thin, and I am engaged for a city dinner. Among the hundred flowers of futility on both sides, I was unable to detect any sort of reason why a lunatic should be allowed to shoot me in the back garden. He had settled his silk hat on his head and gone out sailing placidly to the garden gate, while the almost wailing voice of Pym still followed him. But really, the bullet missed you by several feet, and another voice added, the bullet missed him by several years. There was a long and mainly unmeaning silence, and then Moon said suddenly, 
We have been sitting with a ghost. Dr. Herbert Warner died years ago. End of section 25 End of chapter 4